18. When your money counts on it. Sex work and transformative justice. An interview with Monica Forrester and Eileen Lamb, by Chanel Gallant. All around the world, sex workers are pushed out of the charmed circle of respect and protection and must organize their own safety. The most recent attacks on sex workers in the United States came from the introduction of a set of laws called SESTA-FOSTA, Stop Enabling Sex Traffickers Act-Fight Online Sex Trafficking Act, that effectively shut down online escort ad platforms, and with it, one of sex workers' most effective screening tools. The right and the left like to tell us that these laws are designed to stop trafficking. It's bullshit, and sex workers have fought them tooth and nail. Criminalization has never helped sex workers. Instead, it's why cops can get away with committing about a third of all sexual assaults against sex workers. Many people assume that sex work safety measures are necessary because sex work jobs are intrinsically dangerous. This isn't true, and it blames sex workers for the risks of abuse they face. Taking money doesn't make sex dangerous. I think most sex workers would agree that money is the best part of the job, sex workers face risks of violence because their whole lives are at risk of violence. The danger comes from the systems that devalue and isolate sex workers and expose them to unchecked stigma, discrimination, deportation, and interpersonal and state abuse. Katie Simon describes the role of sex workers and the effects of the systems that devalue them. Sex work is a low-entry barrier job which functions as a failsafe for many groups marginalized by capitalism, women, people of color, LGBTQ people, disabled people, and poor and criminalized people. This is why horiphobia is actually an intertwined combination of stigmas. The way people loathe sex workers, the way they think of us as dirty, dumb, perverse, amoral agents of infection with no self-respect, is heavily coated with misogyny, racism, classism, transmisogyny, homophobia and ableism.24. Millions of others face the same dangers that sex workers do. I interviewed Eileen Lamb and Monica Forrester, organizers with decades of experience, to ask them how sex workers manage their safety outside of systems that are indifferent to their needs. Eileen Lamb of Butterfly and MSWP. Eileen Lamb has been involved in the sex workers movement for almost 20 years. She is a founder of Butterfly, Asian and Migrant Sex Workers Support Network, and co-founder of the Migrant Sex Workers Project, MSWP. Both projects are based in Toronto and include a grassroots group of migrants, sex workers, and allies who demand safety and dignity for all sex workers regardless of immigration status. Butterfly and the MSWP create tools used by migrant sex workers to protect themselves against human rights violations, to educate the public about the dangers of anti-trafficking initiatives, and to advocate to change policies that hurt and exploit migrants in the sex trade. Chanel Gallant interviewed Lamb in September 2018. Eileen, police are not always the solution for sex workers because of criminalization and discrimination, especially for migrant and sex workers of color. Both are targeted by municipal enforcement, the police, and immigration enforcement. They all bring negative consequences. For example, if a sex worker is robbed, she knows how much she lost. But with police, she never knows how often they'll come to rob her again, if they'll tell her family or attack her. Encounters with police are very dangerous, you never know what will happen when the police have your information in the system. They could criminalize the sex worker, her boyfriend, who they see as a pimp, she could lose her immigration status and lose custody of her children. Sex workers know the problems of regulation and the law. 
they live in the gap between the laws. Sex workers live with the complexity of the legal system and navigate it every day as they create alternatives to handle problems like surveillance by social services, discrimination, their own family problems, and policing. So they are very creative and have many ways of handling issues, but most of their solutions are criminalized. For example, sharing information with other co-workers, screening clients, knowing how to negotiate with clients so that they feel like the sex worker is protected, for example, saying to a client say hi to my security guy, having another worker stick around when a client comes in, or calling a trusted client if something goes wrong, because the clients often have resources. All these measures that people take to protect themselves are illegal. People think that clients are all dangerous, but only aggressors are dangerous, not clients. When I first started working with the sex workers community in Hong Kong, there were lots of serial robbers and sexual assault. Sometimes they'd attack a sex worker three times in a single day or five times a week. People were being tied up during the assaults and sometimes not found for up to 48 hours. We had problems with serial rapists, people causing serious injury, and gang rape. The politicians and the police were no help. The politicians would announce a crackdown on sex workers before elections to get votes, so sex workers would be dealing with abusers and increased police harassment. Police would drag sex workers into the station and force them to sign a document saying that they would leave the area. Sometimes they would, or they'd stand right in front of the workers' business to scare away clients. If the cop was extra mean or lazy, he would fuck with the locks to the business doors so sex workers couldn't get back in. If sex workers called the police because of these attacks, they would be strip-searched by the police, told to leave, and threatened with arrest. Because of this hostile situation, no one called the police. It was a very dangerous situation and we needed to respond urgently, so we started to develop solutions. Instead of getting protection from law enforcement, they developed protective measures in the community. The sex workers I worked with developed an observation network. The internet was less common at the time, so people depended on the phone for their communication. We set up a phone number where people could report violence to us, and we started to collect the information. We needed to find a way to tell other sex workers and share the information about abusers and police. We started to train sex workers to take consistent reports on aggressors so they could share accurate information with other sex workers. For example, aggressors often changed their pants and shirts but not their shoes and bags, they were always carrying a bag to take things in. We learned how to record someone's height by paying attention to how much taller he is than you. We got volunteers to come in and role-play being aggressors, then train sex workers on how to see someone and remember the critical details about them. We also learned how to collect evidence for our own or a police investigation. For example, give the client a glass of water so that he leaves his prints on the glass. Empty the rubbish bin so that aggressors can't guess how much money you have based on how many client condoms you have in the trash. If he becomes aggressive at the end of the service and has used a condom, you'll be able to easily identify which condom is his and have his DNA evidence. We also recommend ways that sex workers can keep their money and minimize their losses. They have to prepare for how to respond when they experience robbery or other kinds of violence. It is important to create the space where they can develop tips to educate other community members. We collectively bought surveillance equipment at a discount and loaned it out to sex workers on the condition that they share information about any incidents of violence. At first sex workers didn't trust us because they didn't feel comfortable with surveillance and worried it would scare off clients. But eventually they began to trust us more and preferred to screen out known abusers even if they couldn't call police. 
sex workers would let their clients see that they had surveillance to deter problems. If we had video of an aggressor, we'd take a shot of his face and make a poster and share it with everyone. If the aggressor was spotted in the neighborhood, we'd follow the guy, get a picture, and send to others. We wanted them to feel watched and afraid of getting charged with possession of weapons and stolen goods. We used our position as a social service organization to negotiate with police. The sex workers couldn't call police, but we could call and report someone with a weapon. We arranged with police so that sex workers could make a collective complaint without identifying themselves and giving their work addresses. Sex workers would call the organization in front of the client and pretend that they were calling their boss. We would be the worker's safe call. We would wait for their call at the end of the service and if they didn't call us back, we would contact a friend of the workers, pre-arranged, who would go to their workplace to check on them. Collectively we advocated for changes with police and judges not to disclose personal information of sex workers including in robberies, which was standard practice at the time. The media also followed the police scanner, so we offered identical jackets to women who were charged so they could cover their faces and avoid media after they left the courthouse. We advised sex workers to call the police station if they decided to and not 911, because the police station number was not on the media's radar. In some cases, we convinced police to stop harassing sex workers and other people in the neighborhood and sometimes to even serve as security for sex work businesses. We built this by working with a particular team of cops whose mandate did not include arresting sex workers. The police, you have to guide them. We also did political lobbying against police harassment. We started with small, practical things like negotiating for them not to request ID from sex workers. Our efforts were completely focused on what was practical. The police published a letter agreeing not to harass sex workers, and we printed it out and put it on the walls of sex worker businesses. When police came by to harass workers, we would remind them that they would be going against their boss, the head cop. When police practices or administration changed, though, we would lose everything we'd gained, especially if they decided to target sex workers again. We might spend three years developing an initiative only to see it destroyed in a week. As we collected information, we began to notice patterns in sexual assaults and began to learn investigation techniques. This helped us to develop better protection strategies. Migrant sex workers were often less organized and less connected but often still connected to local community members. Sometimes when we would do outreach, it was community members on the street, like vendors, who would tell us about the bad guys and point them out. We would explore solutions with non-sex working community members about dangerous people, which can include warning them, or taking a picture and putting it on a poster, or having someone beat them up. Then the sex worker is protected by non-sex worker community members. One guy disappeared after being beaten up. We focused on restoring agency and sense of power to sex workers. If they can avoid the abuser, they already feel empowered. We learned about how to emotionally manipulate abusers and police to reduce harm. For example, make the police feel like we appreciate their protection and make thieves feel like you understand their story and are on their side. Workers being robbed would say, I know you're in desperate need. Don't worry. I understand. Here, take the money. And give him one stash of money. While doing that, she would tell him a sob story about how she hoped he would just leave her enough money to get home and her ID all while noticing all his features so she could later report him. He thinks it's all your money and sometimes feels bad for you. Sex workers also learn to negotiate with a rapist to use a condom or, if not, to reduce injury, or get him to come quickly and leave.
The most important thing though isn't how these self-defense strategies affect the aggressor. It's that this makes the sex worker feel powerful. Facing a rapist or thief can be mentally destroying, but this approach gives agency back to the sex worker, gives the sex worker the time to collect evidence, and connects the sex worker to the aggressor's humanity. This is so important for building resilience. How you manage your agency in crisis really affects how much you are traumatized. To deal with crisis, you need to manage yourself, manage the situation, manage the aggressor. This is why trauma-informed solutions can be problematic. They can reinforce the person as a site of trauma, not agency. We took a resilience-based approach. We also had four self-defense instructors come in to help us develop a self-defense class that worked for sex workers. It focused on how to move your body so you get injured but not killed by a murderer. We developed collective strategies like how to hide knives and anything that can be used for strangulation, how to deal with hiding money. They developed a system for how to manage the environment, manage the aggressor, and manage oneself. Sex workers who've been harmed can get justice in many ways without police. They can share their experiences with others to protect them. They can train others. They can work to change the system. All of these forms of justice can restore agency to the sex worker. Sex workers have to move through sexual trauma, or they can't work or survive. Sex workers are targeted because the perpetrator knows that they are criminalized and they are not protected. So sex workers are forced to develop tools and ways to protect themselves, due to the failures of the justice system. It is important to recognize that sex work is work and sex workers should be respected and be able to work safely. Monica Forrester of Maggie's Toronto Sex Workers Action Project Monica Forrester, a Black and Mohawk Two-Spirit trans organizer and former sex worker, is the program coordinator at Maggie's, Toronto Sex Worker Action Project, a Toronto sex worker drop-in and advocacy center. In the late 1990s, along with Maidie's trans sex worker organizer Mara Soleil Ross, she started almost every grassroots organization for poor and street-involved trans people in Toronto and advocated and won the right for trans women to be in women's homeless shelters. In 2018, she won the Steinert and Ferrero Award for LGBT Leadership. She continues to be a respected leader in Black, trans women of color, and sex working communities. Monica Sex workers have a number of ways to stay safe without the police, which I will describe here in three categories, prevention, healing, and justice. Prevention. Sex workers share information quickly to protect each other from abusers and from police. We share it in person on the corner or at sex worker-led drop-ins, by texting, we'll post about it on social media, report it to bad date lists through agencies, or we'll share it on our advertising site if there are sex worker-only forums on it. People always have a safety plan like letting others know where they are working, how, and when. They take precautions like working in groups, in lit areas and seeing the client in areas that we're familiar with where there are people around and we can access help if we need it. Having control over where we work is really important. We always have a plan for what to do if things get out of control. We also practice all kinds of self-defense like not wearing anything around your neck that could be used against you and we carry whatever a weapon looks like to us but won't get us criminalized like a pen or hairspray you can spray in someone's face. Healing. We can heal from violence without going to the cops, a lot of that is through validation and not blaming our work for violence. We need validation that if we smoked crack or worked the corner or looked too sexy, we didn't bring violence on. 
A lot of sex workers get blamed for being in risky work or leading high-risk lifestyles, and this saying that it's their fault, but they don't say that to people who aren't sex workers or trans or black-slash-African-slash-Caribbean or people of color. We can heal each other through that validation. Justice Justice looks like more funding into community-led programs that are centered around sex workers' needs, worker-centered, working with policy and legislation that supports sex workers, repealing laws that put sex workers in harm's way, working on policing practices at a municipal level. Justice is allowing sex workers to lead the conversation about their own experiences of sex work and violence. The experience is different for everyone, and we need counseling and resources that make clear that we're not traumatized by our work but by our oppression. We need to be validated as strong communities, not victims. Justice is served when we get to define our own experiences, breaking down the power imbalance in agencies and government, and giving that power back to sex workers. Yes, we need to remember those who have passed, but we need to remember the living too. We need to ask, how can we better the lives of the living? Chanel, can you tell me about Aloura Wells's story? Monica, Aloura Wells was a homeless two-spirit trans sex worker who disappeared in 2017. She was a regular at Maggie's, and the last time she came in was late July of that year. She was very depressed, suicidal, and traumatized. She was having issues with her boyfriend, and he'd beaten her with a brick. We didn't see her for months after that, and we started asking around in the community. Her sister contacted me and we phoned the jail. They said she was inside, and we figured, okay, she'll be out in a few months. A few months went by and we didn't hear anything, so Maggie sent a letter to the jail asking about her. We never heard back. We called the jail again, and this time they said that she wasn't there and hadn't been. We asked Aloura's father and sister to go to the police and file a missing persons report. Her father went to 52 Division, the local police precinct, to report her disappearance, and they refused to even take a report. They said she was homeless and made up all kinds of excuses to dismiss him. So that's when we called the local news. Me and Jen Porter, of Maggie's, gave interviews talking about the police refusal to even take a report and about our fears. Aloura was dealing with trauma and violence and it wasn't like her to not be around, she came to the indigenous drop-in every week. When that news story broke, the police said, oh, that's not our protocol, we take everyone's lives seriously, blah blah blah. I went online and asked everyone if anyone had seen her. I organized a search party for the ravine where she was living at the time she disappeared. A large crowd supported it and came out. We respected the people that lived in the ravine, and we engaged with them. The search was televised, and we postered everywhere to try to find her. Regardless of who she was, as a homeless two-spirit trans woman she deserved the same rights as anyone else in our society. We did a rally down at police headquarters to speak out about their lack of integrity and support dismissing their claims of alliance with LGBTQ2S communities and how the Aloura Wells situation proved to the larger community that the police are not who people think they are. Then, possibly because of our publicity, a woman came forward. Becky Price had found a body in the ravine, and she knew the person was trans by her clothing. She reported it to the police and to the 519 LGBTQ Community Center. She asked the 519 and the police to make a public announcement about a person found dead so the person could be identified. They both brushed her off, and she forwarded us those emails. The whole time we were searching for Aloura, 
her body was with police who failed to even identify her and didn't do any work to reach out to communities to determine if anyone was missing. They just did nothing. This was at the same time that the cases of Bruce MacArthur and Tess Ritchie were in full swing. 25. At that point, all we knew was that there was a body, but we didn't know if it was Aloura. December was when we finally found out that it was Aloura's body. We had a memorial and tons of people came out. The coroner said that they weren't sure what she died of, but there was major trauma to her body. All her chest bones were broken and there were lacerations to her face, but that wasn't what killed her. Her injuries were not from her death, they were just starting to heal. So she was living in pain. We finally buried Aloura thanks to a private donor. It happened a year after her death, but she is buried with her mother. The boyfriend is very visible in the community and the police haven't even questioned him. He's in the trans community, he's around. People have spoken to the boyfriend who said he was there when Aloura passed. I have made sure that everyone is aware of who he is and the trauma he inflicted on her. A lot of people knew the violence she endured because their relationship was very public. There have been so many deaths this year of community members from overdoses that people are still mourning. Even today I went to a funeral for another trans woman. So, there hasn't been enough engagement about it. The next steps are to identify those gaps and discrepancies and those botched investigations and how the community organizations responded. The police always use excuses to claim that they can't get far in their investigations, but it's because they do nothing to protect the community. And then, like in the case of MacArthur, they denied that there was a serial killer in the area for years. As far as I'm concerned, police won't give you nothing. That's when I was asked to be part of a committee formed to do an external investigation on police practices like how they report or identify missing and found bodies in the community, like the way they didn't when the first few missing men were killed by Bruce MacArthur. Out of that whole situation, a whole external review of police was put together with representatives from the community, Aboriginal Legal Services, all lawyers except me. I said, why am I here? And they said, well you're the one with the biggest mouth in the community because I'm the only one pushing for police accountability for their misconduct. So, we looked at some of the protocol and why investigations were botched, at their transphobia and homophobia and who they deem as important, you know what I mean? I've been asked to work on another committee to do consultations with trans and sex work communities and their experiences with police, identifying some of the stuff that came up in the external review and making recommendations in the police force from the top all the way down through different divisions. The 519 Community Center also knew that a trans person had been found dead and hadn't notified the community. When a trans person is found dead and you run programs for homeless sex working trans women, you have a responsibility to notify community about safety and to engage with community and take a role. They make a lot of money campaigning off marginalized communities, well, put that money into those communities. How much of their millions go into trans programs? It's really saddening that a program that I initially started in 1997 with Marisole Ross has not progressed over the past 20 years. Because of my activism around the Aloura Wells case, they have taken a more supportive role in the case of Mocha a black trans woman convicted of manslaughter for defending her life against a client who had attacked her. Maybe they know they are under a microscope and they need to pull up. I'm trying to keep raising awareness about violence. I have also started the Aloura Wells Trans and Non-Binary Support Group for Persons in the Sex Industry with Money from Surge, Showing Up for Racial Justice, and Leftover from the Online Fundraiser. It is a support group because so many racialized, 
sex working trans women experience violence regularly. So, they can talk about it, find support and tools to support each other through trauma, and have a space centered around them. This could take the form of artwork, one-on-one counseling, or homeopathic medicines. We're really getting out there and trying to find people who have the skills who understand trans people and our experiences. We've had two sessions of the group. The first one was a celebration of life for Aloyura, and then we had a barbecue to get to know each other. An elder did ceremony to get people moving to a space where people can really be able to engage and talk about their experiences. Conclusion These interviews reveal some of the powerful ways that sex workers collectively organize safety. They point to the strategies of turning away from the police, courts, and criminalization while turning toward each other for collective, community-based protection. They show us how important it is for survivors to have safety systems such as comprehensive, reliable information sharing, rather than punishment systems that might create more harm and discourage reporting. They also show us how we can reimagine justice and healing, demonstrating that sometimes we can find both without directly involving the abuser, and that survivors have many kinds of agency, including the power to resist rape culture myths and to believe each other. Lastly, they show the importance of coming together, how political organizing, advocacy, and peer-led training are tools of collective healing and transformation. 24 Katie Simon, They Want Us Dead, Anti-Trafficking Laws Attack Drug Using Sex Workers, Filter, September 25, 2018. 25 Between 2010 to 2017 there were a series of disappearances, mostly of South Asian, Arab, and North African immigrant queer men in Toronto's queer village. Many queer people feared a serial killer was hunting queer men of color, but police brushed off community concerns. After a respectable white man was killed, the police finally conducted a full investigation and discovered that the community was right all along. 68-year-old Bruce MacArthur had been targeting brown men, and in one case, a street-based, white, sex-working man. He was eventually charged with eight counts of murder. Tess Ritchie was a young woman who was also killed while in the Toronto queer village late one night. Police were so indifferent to her disappearance that they failed to discover that her body was 50 feet away from where she was last seen. Her mother discovered her body during a community-run search party. 19. I would like to return my TJ process, or discarding TJ like we discard FEMS. A. Harris Dixon I was helping a friend think through a really challenging transformative justice, TJ process, and we were talking about how to best support the survivor. The survivor felt betrayed by their support team because they had desired a goal for the process that involved permanently excluding the person who caused harm from a space without giving this person a pathway for re-entering the space. The support team was trying to name their own boundaries, name their politics around the goals that they wouldn't pursue, and negotiate an alternative. This process angered the survivor, and they were directing that fury at my friend. Their anger was personal and cruel. There is a way that survivors navigating recent trauma can process boundaries as rejection. And when this happens, I've witnessed and experienced survivors raising their voices, yelling, seemingly directing the entirety of their pain at the support team. When this has happened to me, I felt it was impossible to know what piece of this pain I was supposed to hold. And the guilt and self-loathing that this experience can trigger or unearth can feel unbearable. Through talking with my friend I began to think about the intensity of the rage TJ practitioners hold when the process doesn't go exactly how a survivor expects. And the anger and hatred is not just directed at TJ practitioners, but at TJ as a practice itself. There's a piece of capitalism in it.
It feels like a terrible purchase. I purchased a process, and you were supposed to give me salvation. This is not salvation. I hate you and I curse you and all of your generations. I'm not blaming survivors or support teams at all. It's just that we can't return people to their lives before trauma, or before violence, and that realization can feel devastating. But there was something in this cursing of generations, in this you're supposed to hold my pain forever, that also felt entitled and familiar. It reminded me of the way people would react with anger and sometimes hatred when I named my sexual boundaries as a fat girl. It just kept reminding me of the way cis dudes treat fat girls when they won't have sex with them. It was like these dudes were entitled to my body, or that the survivors I was supporting were entitled to my labor. Somewhere in this experience, there was this familiar loss of agency. The place where these two experiences intersect is within the expectations. Whether as slutty fat girls or TJ practitioners, we aren't allowed to have boundaries. This expectation is gendered, raced, classed, and so very queer. Folks who hold processes are queer, are trans, are non-binary, are immigrants, are women of color, have disabilities, are survivors ourselves, are from working-class backgrounds, identify as addicts or former addicts. The majority of people I know who hold TJ processes also identify as women and or femmes. And of course we are, because we are people who've had the least access to safety, accountability, or justice. But as people who hold multiple intersecting oppressions, we also hold the expectations of those oppressed identities, and people expect that women and femmes of color are boundaryless sources of emotional labor. TJ is not immune to that. I'm the type of person who likes a tool, a strategy, a rubric to fix these kinds of issues. I haven't yet encountered a tool that could address this. I still struggle to hold a fully formed conversation about this dynamic. I just know that I am in a community of tough bitches who know how to hold people's pain and know how not to take the anger personally, even when it's cruel, even when it's personal. I desire that people can critique processes without tearing other people apart. I desire that we have stronger systems and practices that don't involve us quietly swallowing other people's anger, hurt, trauma, and pain. When I first started this writing, I hope that this piece would create a set of questions for survivors who find themselves hating their TJ process, but then I realize that the only true answer for that is for the survivor to get the healing that they need, and often the trajectory of healing is on a different timeline and trajectory than a process. So, instead, here is a list of ideas for the person who is holding the anger. This is not about you. This is trauma projected on you. You do not have to win this process. It is not about winning or losing. And you do not have to make this process perfect, because the criminal legal system is so flawed. Do your best, stay in your integrity, grow, learn, rinse, repeat. Be accountable for your mistakes, but don't immediately assume that your mistakes are harmful. We are all learning within this work. Water, rest, homies, hugs, good food, good sex, and all the self-care strategies wrapped up together. We are doing the work of centuries. You don't have to get it right in one process. 20. Vent Diagrams as Healing Practice TJ Tips from the Overlap Elizabeth Long Years of anti-violence movement work and study does not make one invulnerable to intimate partner violence. I knew this intellectually, yet it came to me as a humiliating shock when I found myself trying to leave a sexually and emotionally abusive relationship with a fellow queer woman organizer. 
Though my anti-violence experience did not shield me from the relationship, it helped me tremendously as I strategized to leave the relationship and lead a transformative justice process, a process that I describe as successful because I met my goals too, 1. Increase my safety, 2. Prevent and reduce future harm by the person who harmed me, and, 3. Build capacity within white anti-racist movement to respond to intimate and sexual harm. Despite the process's success and the phenomenal support I had, it was painful to experience our community's struggles to hold complexity and the nuances of survivorship and harm. Near the close of my process, E.M. Alana Eisen-Markowitz and Rachel Schrage's launched Vent Diagrams, a collaborative social media and art project. They define a Vent Diagram as a diagram of the overlap of two statements that appear to be true and appear to be contradictory. We purposefully don't label the overlapping middle. A good vent draws out attention that we don't have language for because that non-binary overlap it isn't really part of our public discourse, yet. By styling these tensions as unlabeled Venn diagrams, we get to a. actively confront binary thinking and b. imagine what's actually in the overlap every time we see and feel the vent.26. Vent diagrams became an outlet for privately working through my rage, resentment, and grief about the process and publicly sharing lessons. Below are a few of my top vents with accompanying tips for practicing the overlap. How do we practice belief in people's capacity to transform with the ability to see them as they are right now? Both sides of this vent are oft conflated with untruths that get in the way of transformative change. On one side, there is a conflation of belief in people's capacity to transform with a belief in their transformation, regardless of evidence of behavior change. This often occurs when people, 1 have not witnessed the harmful behavior themselves, too, are struggling to reconcile it with their positive idea of the person who has done harm, and simultaneously are, 3, trying not to wholly deny the survivor's truth, or not be perceived as doing so, at least. On the other side is the conflation of present behavior with future behavior, a smart protective strategy and an understandable response when we have invested in people's transformation and repeatedly been disappointed. But neither of these conflations are true. How do we practice belief in people's capacity to transform with the ability to see them as they are right now? We can do so by building our accountability assessment skills and practicing in relationship with ourselves. Creative Interventions, C, describes accountability as a process that can vary in depth and time.27 Accountability can look many different ways, stopping harmful behavior, naming harmful behavior, giving sincere apologies, stepping down from leadership roles, developing daily healing and reflection practices to address root causes of harmful behavior, building a support pod, 28 providing material repair, contributing to community efforts to end intimate and sexual harm. Dodging accountability can look many different ways, denying, avoiding, minimizing, shifting blame, manipulating, disconnecting, waiting it out without taking genuine action. No one is wholly accountable or unaccountable. We demonstrate different expressions of, unaccountability with different people in different ways at different times in different contexts. We need to be able to discern where people are at in this process in order to increase safety and healing for survivors, honor the change people are making in taking accountability, and provide support and redirection when needed. In the context of transformative justice, discerning people's transformation requires assessing their accountability. See Staircase of Accountability is a helpful tool for assessing levels of accountability.29 The steps are 2. 1. Stop the immediate violence. 2. Recognize the violence. 3. 
recognize the consequences of violence without excuses, even if unintended. 4. Make repairs for the harm. 5. Change harmful attitudes and behaviors so that violence is not repeated. And 6. Become a healthy member of your community. 30. This tool outlines what each step means and provides examples of how someone may demonstrate it and what action may be needed from community supports. We can build our accountability assessment muscles in relationship with ourselves. The Northwest Network defines accountability as taking responsibility for your choices and the consequences of those choices. 31. We all have accountability work to do. Shannon Perez Darby describes self-accountability as a tool to assess whether the choices we make align with the person we want to be in the world and as a process for making change when they don't. She encourages a daily practice that includes asking oneself, are there things I did today that are outside of my values? Are there things I need to do to clean that up? 32. When cleanup involves taking responsibility for the impacts of my choices on others, I use the staircase of accountability to look at what accountability I've taken, or need to take, and how I can deepen it. Change is incredibly messy and complicated. When caterpillars go into a cocoon and become butterflies, they completely fall apart into a big pile of goo before they turn into a totally different creature that is still them. The process that both survivors and people who've abused go through to transform and take accountability is like that. It's understandable to assume that people have already transformed, especially if you have not personally witnessed their harmful behavior. It's hard to hold the reality of the harm people have done, or their lack of accountability, especially if they are people we love. It's understandable to make assumptions about our own transformation for the same reasons. But none of us win when we do that. We can demonstrate our belief in people's capacity to transform by building the assessment skills and discernment to see clearly where folks are starting from and understand what behaviors would demonstrate transformation. TJ makes me vengeful. Honoring survivor contradictions makes transformative justice possible. Revenge fantasies and transformative justice are not mutually exclusive. In fact, I didn't start having revenge fantasies until the process was in full swing. At the beginning of the process, I was angry but also felt a lot of compassion toward the person who assaulted me. As she denied any harmful behavior while continuing to cause further harm, my revenge fantasies took flight. Honoring and experiencing them dissolved their grip on me, making it more possible to act in alignment with my values throughout the process. Despite my understanding of this, I was terrified to share lessons about managing revenge fantasies, scared it would be used to discredit my motivations, my political commitments, my process, me. But when Mariam Kaba and Adrienne Marais Brown acknowledged their revenge fantasies in conversation at the 2018 Allied Media Conference, I was emboldened to share my revenge fantasy vent and accompanying tips. 33 survivors clearly needed it, it was my most engaged with vent. Expressing revenge fantasies can feel liberatory. Acting on revenge fantasies usually doesn't. Tips for survivors. Let yourself experience the fantasy completely. Write it out, as many times and as many ways as you want. Do a photo shoot. Check out queer femme photographer Kenzie Crash's revenge fantasy photo series, coming for you.34. Punch a pillow. Kick a pillow. Stab a pillow. Vocalize your revenge fantasy to trusted supports, with consent. Start a martial arts or weightlifting practice. Scream. Listen to Goodbye Earl 20 times a day. Watch Thelma and Louise. Take it to the batting cages. 
Ask beloveds to intervene if you move toward behaving vengefully and to support you in making decisions aligned with your values and safety needs when it comes to sharing any of the above publicly. Tips for allies and supporters. Don't equate vengeful feelings with a move toward vengeful action. If you're concerned or confused about discerning the difference, ask that hold space for rage and grief and messiness. Don't try to fix it or stop the feelings. Affirm that revenge fantasies are okay and that it's brave to name them. Ask the survivor where they feel the revenge fantasy in their bodies and use that as a guide for finding a generative expression of it. Find an outlet for your revenge fantasies. Tips for people who have done harm. Accept that a consequence of your behavior is that others may wish you harm. Build practices and supports that affirm your dignity in the context of that. Be curious about how, unexpressed, revenge fantasies related to your past may have shaped your harmful behavior. Look to the tips for survivors about how to express those. Do not express publicly. Do not share privately without consent. Remind yourself that you have a responsibility to heal and change and that you deserve to be free from harm. Do not conflate consequences with harm. Ask for support if you are struggling to discern the differences. My successful, traumatic TJ process. When working toward engaging people to stop violence, take responsibility, and make new choices, stay away from making all of your goals reflect how you'd like other people to respond to you and your requests. Avoid thinking of success as only what you get the other person to stop doing or start doing or change. You can never guarantee someone else's response. And you can never monitor someone's every move.35. At the close of my process, after a year of TJ work, I was exhausted, resentful, and heavy with grief and shame. I was also proud of myself and grateful for the comrades and beloveds who supported me and pushed change on individual, organizational, and movement levels. But the last thing I wanted to do was write or talk about TJ. When I was finally ready, I shared this vent. TJ is hard. Coming forward about violence is hard. Investing in the transformation of ourselves, others, our communities, and organizations, it's all hard work. Often, it's beyond hard and becomes its own trauma. I have triggers I did not have before the process. Going into the process, I didn't know how traumatizing it would be, but I knew it would challenge all of me. And still, all my goals were met. Some were met in different places and ways than I expected at the beginning, but they were all met. I set myself up for success by setting goals that were measurable, flexible enough to be met in more than one way, and not dependent on the actions of the person who did me harm. So, for example, my goal to prevent and reduce future harm by the person who harmed me was met by her removal from a position of leadership and by sharing information about her history of sexual violence with our mutual networks with the intent of supporting others in making informed decisions about their engagement with her. Ideally, This goal would have been met by her taking on the labor of addressing the root causes of her harmful behavior, but I knew from the beginning that to risk the success of my process on that was to give her too much power. My story about myself and my life changed through this process. I want survivors and allies to know the probability of, re-traumatization going in. I don't want that truth minimized when I center what feels like a much deeper truth for me, the power of the people who protected, defended, held, and cared for me through it. My story of this process is one of further harm, but it is also a story of reducing harm, of connection and care, of receiving profound generosity and patience, persistent compassion, and brave love. I can tell you about the hard shit, none of it exceptional or surprising. 
but know that it magnified the power of the good. TJ is hard and it may be a new trauma, but it can also be a path to writing ourselves into new stories. Want to use vents as a healing practice? Make a commitment to practice with some form of regularity. Maybe you want to commit to venting 30 minutes a week or having a vent hang with friends every other week. My commitment is to post a TJ vent on Instagram monthly. I usually have a few going in my head, and I work on focusing and refining them throughout the month, especially when tension is high, I'm triggered, or I'm inspired to encapsulate a piece of wisdom from another resource. Here are some prompts to get you started. What do you want people to know? Where do you feel closed in? Where do you jump to conclusions? What nuances do you forget? What nuances does your community forget? What complexity do you need to remind yourself of? What do you find yourself repeatedly reminding others of? Where is the wholeness of your story dishonored? What would make it whole? 26 Vent Diagrams What is this about? https colon slash slash www.ventia Accessed April 5, 2019 27 Creative Interventions The Creative Interventions Toolkit a Practical Guide to Stop Interpersonal Violence, June 2012, Section 4F, 3-4, June 2012, http colon slash slash www.creativeinterventions.org slash wp content slash upload slash 2019 slash 05 slash ctoolkit complete final dot pdf. 28 Mia Mingus, Pods and Pod Mapping Worksheet, Bay Area Transformative Justice Collective, June 2016, https colon slash slash com slash pods and pod mapping worksheets slash 29 creative interventions the creative interventions toolkit section 4f 3 to 4 30 ibid 31 shannon perez darby what is accountability video barnard center for research on women accountable communities video series october 26 2018 Video posted on Vimeo by BCRW Videos, September 26, 2018, https colon slash slash vimeo.com slash 291929184. 32 Ibid. 33 Adrienne Marais Brown and Mariam Kaba, Education for Abolition Workshop held at the Allied Media Conference in Detroit, Michigan, June 17, 2018. 34 Kenzie Crash, Coming for You, Poster http colon slash slash kenziecrash.com slash coming for you slash 35 creative interventions creative interventions toolkit section 4f 15 21 facing shame from saying sorry to doing sorry nathan shara one of the very hardest things about preventing and ending violence is that most of our work isn't really about getting someone to stop being violent most of the time that's not the heart of the thing. The even more rigorous struggle is to cultivate all of the awareness and skills that would have been necessary for the violence not to have happened in the first place. Which is why, when we talk about violence, we always end up talking about everything, slavery, binary gender, the original disconnection of humans from the rest of life on this planet, and so on. Solving violence is rarely as much about the moment at hand as it is about everything else that preceded it. Which is where shame comes in. As a therapist who has spent the last decade working with movement folks who are survivors of intimate violence, as well as with many people who have caused harm, I see shame as one of the most pervasive, painful, and insidious barriers to our efforts to fulfill the aspirations of transformative justice. 
In order to develop real responses to the myriad harms in our lives, or even the capacity to develop real responses, we need to understand shame and develop tools for working with it, individually and collectively. In 2012, I began working with Zara, a Pakistani-American woman in her late 20s who sought me out to pursue healing from trauma that she said has ruined everything I love. I knew Zara peripherally through her organizing work on immigrant rights and her local involvement in blocking the construction of a new detention center. She was a passionate, high femme flurry of movement who usually showed up out of breath, 20 minutes after the time we'd scheduled, in a bolt of patterns and color that brightened my far more subdued therapy office. As our work began, Zara shared that she had been sexually abused by an adult male community faith leader when she was in elementary school. When her family learned about the abuse, they acted protectively to immediately cut off her relationship with him, but they never acknowledged the abuse with her again. Zara had not even remembered until an anti-oppression workshop years later, during one of those stand-up-if-you-grew-up-with-two-parents, stand-up-if activities. The facilitator had said stand-up-if-you've-ever-been-sexually-assaulted, and Zara found herself on her feet, crying, saying, Why am I standing? I don't know why I'm standing, over and over through her tears. In working with Zara over time, she shared more about the profoundly confusing messages she had received from her family. While her parents never acknowledged the abuse throughout her childhood, adolescence, or early adulthood, they had pressured her about what she wore, where she went, and whom she spent time with. Even now, her parents were unable to talk about the abuse when she brought it up with them, which she attributed to her father's overwhelming shame at having failed to protect her. Despite political values that affirmed that the sexual abuse was not her fault, Zara moved through her life with a belief that she was tainted. Shame. What is shame? Shame is different than guilt. While guilt focuses on our behavior, I did something bad, shame creates an identity, I am bad. Shame keeps us stuck, isolated, and hiding. With no way to escape from the totality of our belief, I just am wrong, we may do some of the following. Hide what we feel is bad about ourselves and try hard to pass as good. Overcompensate in other parts of life through overwork, caretaking, or perfectionism to make up for whatever is wrong about us. Defend ourselves from any insinuation that we might have done wrong, attempt to rationalize, or justify our actions. Blame someone else, try to divert responsibility, or shift the focus onto another. Attack anyone who draws attention toward the source of our shame, try to have power by dominating or shaming others. Numb through self-harming use of alcohol, substances, food, sex, technology, and so on. Most of us use all of these strategies in different moments. Overaccountability and underaccountability are two sides of the same coin, I can't stand how bad I feel and can't imagine making it right, overaccountability, so I'm going to hide that it, whatever it is, even happened, or lie about it or blame someone else, underaccountability. 36. Early on in my relationship with Zara, she described the crushing self-doubt that she lived with and her struggle to trust anything that seemed to be going well. It feels like if someone is into me, it's because they're objectifying me and if they really got to know me, they wouldn't like what they'd find. If someone tells me I did a good job at work, I don't feel happy about it, I just feel all this pressure, like what if I can't do it as well the next time? Zara had changed job, partner, or city, or all three, at least once every six months for the last seven years and said that in many cases she found herself leaving a decent situation for a worse option. At least if it's shitty, 
I know what to expect. Sometimes it feels like I'm just moving as fast as I can to try and stay ahead of the feelings. Our work initially focused on Zara learning to tolerate the sensations in her own body without running away from them. As she stayed with her feelings for longer and longer moments, she began to acknowledge how much she had been running from and the depth of hurt that she was carrying. The fear and anger that she discovered were certainly about the abuse, but also about her parents' inability to support her. She realized that she had learned years ago that not feeling allowed her to stay connected with her family. By denying her own emotions, she had been able to protect herself from some of their shame-filled, and shaming, reactions to her. In order to move from shame toward accountability and healing, we need to believe that safety, connection, and dignity are possible. If we know or believe that our physical, sexual, or material safety will be violated if we disclose either the harm that was done to us or the harm we have caused, then concealing these things is an understandable and fundamentally adaptive way to maintain our safety. If we experience social rejection, ostracism, and isolation by disclosing our experiences of harm, whether surviving harm, causing harm, or both, then concealing, minimizing, and denying these experiences are logical and fundamentally life-affirming strategies, albeit with huge costs. If we cannot reveal what we have done or what was done to us without being seen as inferior, damaged, tainted, broken, monstrous, irreparable, and so on, then, out of a core human drive toward dignity, we will not do it. Therapist and author Harriet Lerner writes, If identity, who you are, is equated with your worst behaviors, you will not accept responsibility or access genuine feelings of sorrow, because to do so would invite feelings of worthlessness. How can we apologize for something we are, rather than something we did? One day, just over a year into working with Zara, she came in for one of our sessions visibly upset. She sat on the small couch in my office folded in on herself with her fingers digging into the front of the cushion behind her knees. She said, there's something I haven't told you, and I understand if you can't work with me anymore. Sobbing throughout the session, she shared that when she was in her early teens, she had sexually abused her younger sister. She had never shared this with anyone, nor had she ever acknowledged it with her sister. Though my work with Zara wasn't initially connected to any type of TJ or community accountability process, I routinely found myself reflecting on what a transformative process would look like around Zara, her family, and their communities. What had Zara needed as a nine-year-old girl? What resources would her parents have needed to have been more supportive after the abuse? Whatever happened to the man who sexually abused Zara? Did he sexually abuse other children? As I learned more about her family, I also came to see greater nuance and complexity, how Islamophobia, class privilege, assimilation, and patriarchy had intersected to shape the context within which Zara was sexually abused. After this huge disclosure, I also found myself wondering, what if Zara had started working with me because her sister had called her into an accountability process? How might she have showed up in that process in the first six months of our work together? How would that have looked different if she was asked into a TJ process during or after this moment in her healing process? Assessing for shame and capacity when choosing what kind of TJ process to engage. Working these last years with folks who have been abusive, I see a consistent paradox. People who have done harm often need to share their experiences of being harmed themselves before they're able to feel or acknowledge the impact of their own actions. And yet, what many survivors need first from the person who caused them harm is acknowledgement of the abuse. How do we develop responses to harm and TJ processes that anticipate and account for this ongoing tension? 
I think at least one part of the answer is for us to significantly widen our view of what transformative processes can look like. A community accountability process involving all parties together in a room can't be the gold standard for every situation. From my view, the impulse toward engaging in a community-based process that includes a person who caused harm in an impacted party is sometimes based more in reactivity and hope than in a grounded assessment of current time reality. I just need her to know that I didn't mean to. Or I just want to see it in her eyes that she's sorry, that she understands what she did to me. Any of us choosing to engage in a process or supporting another individual within a process need to maintain a big enough view of the situation to assess the capacity of the person who has caused harm for accountability before putting parties together. One of the most critical questions for us to engage with is the capacity and motivation of the person who caused harm to face the impact of their actions. Saying sorry, feeling sorry, doing sorry, being sorry. Most of us have plenty of examples of how easy it is to say the word sorry without meaning it. And we also probably have at least a few examples that reveal how radically different that is from when we say I'm sorry and mean it wholeheartedly. Saying sorry can definitely be a starting point for accountability, but it can also be a way to avoid facing consequences. Feeling sorry can mean a lot of different things, and it is another place where unpacking shame can be very relevant to TJ. Feeling bad is not the same as feeling sorry. And feeling bad doesn't inherently make us more capable of stopping our harmful behavior, nor does it magically provide us with the skills to be able to do something different when presented with a similar scenario. Feeling remorse, the pain of regret for actions we've taken that violate our own values, can be an important part of the work of becoming accountable. It usually requires some level of unnumbing, or developing our compassion for the experience of the person or people we've harmed. Doing sorry means that we are taking specific actions toward repair, even if these occur largely separately from the person we've harmed. For example, one person with whom I worked made monthly financial contributions to two women and he had abused while in relationships with each of them. Another person eventually was able to ask two members of their broader network of friends to support them in understanding the impact of their violence toward their ex-boyfriend. Transformative accountability means that when we apologize, there is congruence between our words, emotions, and actions. We're not just saying the words, but we can also name what it is that we're sorry for, recognizing the harm we've caused and being able to acknowledge its impacts. Feeling remorse. Taking action toward repair and restitution and demonstrating a commitment to stopping the harm and to changing. Being sorry. As folks involved in convening, supporting, and facilitating accountability processes, we need to ask ourselves and one another, is direct engagement among parties at this time likely to be transformative, neutral, or harmful? Transformative is a high standard. It means investing in everyone's transformation over time, which rarely aligns as neatly between parties as our theory and dreams would suggest. Complex as it is, this assessment also has to include our capacity to register or receive accountability. Sometimes we are so eager to believe that someone has changed that we may rush toward forgiveness, extending trust long before they have demonstrated any real shift toward new action. Other times, the volume of our own pain and anger about the hurt or the betrayal is so loud that we can't actually hear anything but our own story, including anything the other person might say or do that indicates real remorse, apology, or amends. Where we have experienced harm we may sometimes need help in assessing our own capacity to perceive centered accountability. As folks supporting TJ processes, we may also be in the position of supporting someone who has experienced harm in their assessment of readiness or willingness to engage with the person who harmed them. 
Different stages of accountability and shame healing may need different community processes. Some assessment questions for folks who have experienced harm. What would it mean slash look like slash feel like if X were able to take accountability for the harms they caused? How would you know? What specific requests do you have of them? What are your boundaries? How do you think about or understand what caused X to become harmful? We can be listening for whether the person who experienced the harm wants the person who caused them harm to be punished, to leave them alone, to be forgiven by their friends and family, to apologize to them, or to behave differently so they can re-engage with them, or something else. While there isn't any clear, if this then that formula, someone's responses to these questions can offer us a lot of information about whether direct engagement is likely to produce positive movement. Some assessment questions for folks who have caused harm. How are you relating to this situation? How would you describe your behavior with A? How do you think it impacted A when you underscore? How do you feel about telling people in your life I caused harm to A? How do you think about or understand what caused you to harm A? Here, we can begin to get some sense of how much shame, numbness, blame, and avoidance may be running the show. We can also listen for indications about whether the person is able to acknowledge their behavior as harmful the extent to which they are able to consider the person or people they've harmed enough to consider the impacts of their behavior, how much they are or aren't able to feel remorse, as well as their will and motivation toward change and repair. In many cases, we may conclude that more healing and accountability support are needed with one or more parties before it will be useful to bring a group together to address the impacts. My work with Zara did not end with her telling me about her sister, though she struggled, transparently, over the next several months to stay in. The intensity of the feelings that came rushing forward when she disclosed made her want to unsay it, to move even faster, to put it away again, and to just keep running. She was simultaneously relieved to have finally told someone, angry with me for knowing her secret, devastated that she could have hurt her sister whom she loved so much, and livid that she was sexually abused in the first place. When we are able to face it, shame lets go to reveal pain. This includes both the pain of being hurt as well as the pain of remorse. Where we have been hurt, this pain can include terror, agony, rage, despair, and helplessness, all of which are natural responses to having our integrity violated or our consent stolen from us. We may also experience intense pain in having to grieve the life we might have had if the harm had not occurred. Where we have caused harm, we may experience pain at recognizing that we did something that violates our own integrity or humanity. We may feel grief or regret at having hurt someone, or at the recognition that we could not see our actions as harmful at the time. This pain and remorse often signal the return of feeling and empathy after having been numb, like the pain of feeling returning to a limb that's fallen asleep. For people who have caused harm, some of this emotional work may be necessary for transformative accountability to be possible. As people living within oppressive social conditions, we have all been shaped by the lies of capitalist, eco-murdering, settler-colonial, ableist, white supremacist heteropatriarchy. This ideology of who is valuable and who is expendable can leave us with shame across the board, both where we have been targeted and denied our full humanity and where we have benefited from unearned privilege. When we start digging into the conditions around an incident of harm, we usually discover that there were other harms that preceded this one. As we follow the thread back through time, it splits and splits again, tangling and weaving into other stories and histories until we find ourselves asking still deeper questions about love, fear, scarcity, and the origins of harm. In doing TJ work, 
most of us are forced, at some point, to confront our own contradictions about who deserves connection, compassion, and forgiveness, and what those things include. By facing our shame, we can begin to free ourselves from the inferiority we have internalized, reclaiming our agency and taking bolder actions for social justice and right relationship with our planet. Confronting our shame can also unstick us from the immobilization of privilege, allowing us to join in the solidarity and interdependence our spirits long for. What mistakes might you need to face in order to trust yourself? What hurts are you carrying that remain unwarned? For many of us, transformative justice becomes a set of guiding principles toward lifelong personal, moral, political, and spiritual development. How do I love someone even when I'm angry? How do I make boundaries that protect me and still respect the other person? How do I forgive myself for the things that were never my fault? TJ requires that we stretch our capacity for love and dignity wider and wider, until we are able, individually and collectively, to include nothing less than all of life. 36 folks within community accountability work have described this dynamic in a variety of ways and have developed tools to tease out responsibility and fault. Communities United Against Violences, CUAV, Gems of Change Pendulum offers a middle path between retaliation and minimization. The NW Network of Bi, Trans, Lesbian and Gay Survivors of Abuses Find Your Six Tool supports users in finding the six on a scale of responsibility from 1 to 10 rather than flip-flopping between zero fault and 1,000% responsible. This language for describing shame, over-accountability, under-accountability, and centered accountability comes from the work of generative somatics in Generation 5. 22. Cripping TJ. Lea Lakshmi Piepsna Samarasena. In my experience, most people doing transformative justice work didn't get into it because we thought it would be a random, fun thing to do. Like, hey, I could go for a walk, or I could listen to some of the most harrowing shit imaginable, let's go for door number two, we do it because we're survivors, or the people closest to us are. We care about survivors, we know what it's like to survive brutal shit often alone. We want to change the world so this stuff never happens again. We are also mostly black and brown women, queers, trans, and non-binary people. Many folks doing TJ work are also disabled. Some of us have physical disabilities or chronic illnesses, some of us are deaf, some are neurodivergent. Many of us have madness, psychiatric disabilities or mental health issues, whatever your favorite word is. We are people who experience anxiety, complex PTSD, dissociation, and depression. Some of us have the bigger guns of psychiatrization, schizophrenia, bipolar, BPD, and have various takes on how those diagnoses work for us. Some of us might have been mad even if we weren't survivors.37 but for many of us, our survivorhood and our neurodivergence are pretty damn intertwined. As disabled TJ workers, we know what it's like to inhabit secret body-mind stories that many turn away from, as too much, and that knowledge helps us in our TJ work, people trust us with their survivor stories because they can tell we've seen some shit.38. Yet, even though there's a vast number of mad, sick, and disabled survivor babes out there doing TJ work, there's very little writing out there about the places where disability, survivorhood, and doing TJ work come together. In writing this essay, I wanted to start to change that. There are a million subjects I could write about when it comes to disability and TJ. I focused on three, one, how many people doing TJ work, including myself, are survivors with anxiety and CPTSD, 
and how this confluence of disabled and survivor identities both aids us in our work and exposes us to a ton of vicarious trauma. 2. Some specific abuse dynamics I see disabled folks facing, and, 3. How crippling TJ centralizing disability and anti-ableism and how we do the work, can and does open up new possibilities, fueled by disability justice organizing strategies, for how we can hold the work well and for the long haul. Part 1, Anxious AF and Trying to Make the Rev, I already have PTSD, why am I doing this TJ shit that makes it worse? I've lived with panic attacks and debilitating anxiety since I was 18, when I accidentally smoked a joint dose with angel dust at a high school graduation party. Up until then, my experiences with psychiatric disability were clustered around deep depression, dissociation, and suicidality, linked to the sexual, physical, and emotional abuse that I was surviving. At the party, I hallucinated my ass off, my friends took all the sharps out of the bathroom and locked me in it until I came down. For the rest of that summer, I had week-long panic attacks mixed with depersonalization, the world looked like a TV screen, unreal. I would intermittently feel like the world was ending, not be able to breathe, have intrusive thoughts and rapid heartbeat. If there had been a safe place to get care or information about what was happening, that would have been great, but talking about any of it didn't feel safe. I was waiting to escape my family on a long fought for scholarship, and I was terrified that if I talked honestly about how nuts I was feeling, I would be stuck in their house forever. I danced with panic and altered states for the next 20 years, and with the impact of the ways ableism impacts mad people. A lot of people know I left the United States at age 21 to live in Toronto slash Toronto, Canada. Fewer people know that I did so because when I confronted my parents about my incest memories, they responded by saying I was sick and needed help and threatening to institutionalize me. Their threat was terrifying, it's also a place where their ableism, manifesting as threatened for psychiatric institutionalization, intersects with survivor hatred, telling me that nothing happened, you're crazy and made it all up and need help. In my early 20s, as a very young, poor, feral survivor of color, a large part of how I healed was finding the psychiatric survivor movement and other movement spaces that talked about madness and ableism as political. These spaces, led by mad and disabled people, often black and brown, were rare places where it was okay to be nuts in public to be crying, experiencing panic or altered states, in a meeting or just in life. They allowed me to be my survivor, neurodivergent self in public, with other mad and neurodivergent people, who, far from shaming me for being too much, welcomed my experiences and self as a community member and organizer. As mad people organizing for human rights and autonomous control of our bodies, we created Psychiatric Survivor Pride Day and other activist work, and shared our experience living with trauma and altered states of consciousness. Being in these spaces in and of itself was healing, and I never forget how lucky I was to be able to access them. Many social justice communities are unaware that mad-slash-psychiatric survivor communities and movements exist. However, much of my late 20s and early 30s were spent trying to pass as normal. During my early 20s, while I was connected with mad movement space, I was also surviving two violent relationships that involved death threats and physical violence, the second of which came in the midst of being the sickest I've ever been with chronic fatigue immune deficiency syndrome and fibromyalgia. My communities for the most part had no idea what to do about either the abuse or my disabilities, and mostly shrugged, called me too much, and looked the other way. When I got free of my relationship and started to get a little less sick, I needed to access work and community to survive. 
I was worried I would lose out on both if I was honest about my neurodivergence. I was not wrong. Today the community building and activist work of disabled and neurodivergent BIPOC people, black, indigenous, people of color, from autistic Hoya to the Fireweed Collective have created space where I am able to be out about my neurodivergence, allowing me to respect and learn from my mental difference, not living a closeted, compartmentalized life, hiding my crazy and only showing most people the shiny parts. But I didn't have that then. I don't know anyone who did. As I emerged from the latter of these two violent relationships, people would hear I'd had a situation and come to me with their own you're the only one I can tell this to abuse stories. I did a lot of listening and safety planning late at night on the phone, with little to no mentoring. Like many people thrown into TJ out of our own survivorhood in the late 1990s, we just made it up as we went along. In the late 1990s and early 2000s, I knew hardly anyone else talking about the realities of abuse within activist communities, and community accountability or dealing with abuse without the cops? That was an even wilder crazy talk idea. Because of this scarcity, I was the only one a lot of people could talk to, and as a result I held a lot of intense stories of abuse in my head that I couldn't tell anyone. As I got older, I worked as a counselor at a partner abuse and rape crisis line run by feminists of color, ran TJ workshops, and co-edited a zine that became a book of survivors' stories. As my work got more public, many more people, most of them strangers, came to me asking for support, on email and Facebook messages they sent at 2 o'clock in the morning. Like many people doing this work, I had a hard time figuring out how to set boundaries around these asks. I knew how desperate people have to be to write a stranger their abuse story at 2 a.m. I also helped out with a lot of hair-raising TJ circles, death threats to survivors and their supporters, doxing, people bringing a weapon to an intervention, incredibly complicated intercommunity processes that took years to work through, trying to make things work out within tiny communities where survivors weren't ready to talk about what happened but my friend was now dating their rapist and wanted to invite them to my house. All of this just felt normal. Like, what else would I be doing? I had been alone when I survived the worst of my abuse, and I had promised myself that I would never say no to anyone who came to me. But my commitment to leaving no one behind didn't stop me from getting vicarious trauma from all the stories of abuse I was hearing. My panic attacks increased in both frequency and length, as did my free-floating anxiety. The survivor-focused-slash-anti-nonprofit rhetoric of much feminist anti-violence and early TJ work did didn't leave me or other TJ organizers much room to talk about the vicarious trauma we were experiencing, or to articulate that me might have limits. I absolutely believe that the work we were doing outside of institutions was saving lives, but there was no supervision, no sick days, breaks, or employee assistance programs, the forms of built-in worker support I might have been able to access if I were doing this work as a paid worker. This was an unpaid job where you never punched out. There's rarely been space for us as people doing transformative justice work to talk about how being the bitches listening to everyone's hard stories and carrying their secrets affected us. Our small community of TJ activists was barely keeping up with the ever-increasing load of requests landing on the small number of people seen as people who actually know how to do this shit. Building structures for support, reflection, and breaks often felt like a luxury, so our trauma and burnout came out sideways. I know I'm not alone in watching people who had been key organizers suddenly stop answering their email or quitting TJ to become massage therapists or tax accountants. Burnout dynamics occur on a larger scale when organizations shut down abruptly or don't renew their websites. Finally, 
doing this work often replicated our roles as the secret keepers and fix-it people in our families of origin, but we weren't talking about it. A common practice I've witnessed in TJ work has been to not share any details about a TJ process with anyone, because of security and privacy concerns, which makes sense. But as the work went on, I know I have not been alone in needing a place to debrief. However, other than my therapist, I didn't know any place I could get support. Sometimes, exhausted, I let out a story to a friend, and felt instantly guilty. There was rarely understanding in the communities I lived in that someone holding a lot of support work or coordination in a TJ process who shared a story one night might not be a gossip, but an overwhelmed survivor who needed some place to process. And there were certain questions no one was asking, when do you get to tap out? Is it okay to have a limit? Are you a bad person if you don't answer a frantic email because you're on vacation? As TJ has grown in popularity, I sit with these questions. Sometimes I see people scoff at the idea of TJ, saying, why the hell would I want to do that? Their statements are often met by people rushing in to tell them how community, transformation and love are wonderful things, but I understand the first statement's hesitant cynicism. Sometimes when I witness people talking idealistically about TJ, I want to roll my eyes and ask if anyone's ever brought a gun to their house. If we want TJ to continue to grow and thrive as a movement, if we want people to be able to come in and stick around without being destroyed, and, just as importantly, if we want long-time organizers to be able to stick around instead of burning out, we need to talk about all of this stuff from a disability justice perspective that believes that our exhaustion, vicarious trauma, and triggers are not sidelines to the struggle. We need to take a breath and dare to imagine models for doing this work that are actually sustainable. This could look like planning for breaks, having different roles for folks, allowing folks who have been doing the work for years to move into mentorship and advisor roles, or just understanding that the only way to do TJ isn't to hold 15 intense processes at once. Instead of being surprised by crises, collapse, and triggers, what have we planned for them? And most of all, what would our transformative justice work look like if we put everyone's access needs at the center? Part 2, Mapping Disabled Survivor Stories It's an understatement to say there's not a ton of writing out there about disability and abuse. While disabled writers like Eli Clare, Billy Rain, and Peggy Munson have written crucial work about their personal experiences as disabled survivors, Google searching disabled survivors will mostly turn up links to mainstream sites like the Violence Against Women with Disabilities page of the U.S. Federal Government's Office on Women's Health website. The sites all cite the same statistic that chirps, research suggests that women with disabilities are more likely to experience domestic violence, emotional abuse, and sexual assault than women without disabilities. 62% of disabled women have been abused, in the most common study, 39 and that women with disabilities may also feel more isolated and feel they are unable to report the abuse, or they may be dependent on the abuser for their care. 40. These reports are a start, but leave out a lot, and they flatten disabled survivorhood stories. When I read them as a younger disabled survivor, I related to the stats, but I didn't see the complexities of my own or other disabled survivor stories in there. We're not present as full, complicated beings, as the diabetic trans Latina who depends on her sometimes emotionally abusive partner for access, or your disabled brown friend who's one of a million disabled sex workers navigating potential violence from the cops, or the abusive dynamics within a local disability justice community, or your black family member who got tracked into special ed and raped by a teacher there. Disabled survivors who are other than cis women, who are men, trans, 
non-binary, intersex, or two-spirit, are never included in these discussions. There's rarely any discussion of the sexual, physical, and emotional abuse that is ableism, from medical stripping in hospitals to medical experimentation to the genital mutilation of intersex people, from forced treatment, restraints, and chemical or psychiatric surgery to forced sterilization, or to simply never being asked before being touched by a medical provider. The abuse issues of many disabled black and brown people that happen in jails and residential schools and special ed classrooms don't always get mentioned. Neither do our stories of individual and collective resistance to abuse. Disability is a part of many stories of abuse, but as TJ workers, it's often an afterthought, something that surprises us, rather than something we are examining and talking about from the beginning of our work. There are a million different stories of what abuse and survivorhood look like in disabled lives, and how ableism and disability play out in abuse stories, and there's no way I can do them justice. But here are some made-up stories, based on dynamics I've observed in my own life and my own communities over the years. All of these are composites. 1. Maritza and Yeselika are two disabled Latinx partners who live together, Maritza uses a power chair, Yeselika is a walkie, using forearm crutches. They are looked up to as role models, as a dream disabled brown queer couple in their local crip and queer slash trans people of color community. Yeselika has a wider social circle because she can go to spaces that are inaccessible to Maritza. They do a lot of care for each other and share a politic of collective access where they believe they and the community can and should provide for each other's needs without government support. Maritza needs more daily physical care that Yeselika does, but Yeselika discourages Maritza from getting a personal care attendant, saying that community should be enough. Yeselika also sometimes snaps when Maritza needs help transferring, or refuses to do care tasks when she's angry at Maritza. Maritza feels afraid of Yeselika but has fewer IRL friends because she can't go to inaccessible events. Being honest that they're struggling, and disrupting the image of the perfect crip of color couple people want to believe in feels overwhelmingly hard to Maritza, and like she'll lose social currency that might help her leave her relationship. She's also scared about whether she can find another accessible apartment if they break up, it took almost a year for them to find a home with a ramp the last time they looked. 2. Revinder is a South Asian trans guy who is plural slash has disassociation slash DID. Sometimes, when he's in a part, he yells when triggered. After he comes back from being triggered, he is panicked that he might have hurt someone by yelling, and shame spirals, hating his disassociation. He's afraid that if he's honest about what's going on, he will lose community because of the deep stigma against DID. He needs somebody who gets neurodivergence who can talk him through what's happening, without judging him but also helping them figure out accessible ways of being accountable and changing behaviors. The only local counselor who is queer positive and has some knowledge of DID has a one-year-long waiting list. 3. The local Disability Justice Action Collective has been meeting for a year. One person starts showing up uninvited at other members' houses late at night, as well as making sexual comments and staring at members in ways that make them feel uncomfortable. When people try to talk with them about it, they respond by saying that the way they are is just their neurodivergence and asking them to stop is ableist. After all, doesn't disability justice mean we're supposed to accept each other as we are? 4. Milena is a black femme with lupus. In her last relationship, her partner used ableism to gaslight her, telling her that the abusive things she remembered her partner doing weren't true and that, she was just misremembering them because of brain fog. 5. 
Lisa is a developmentally disabled indigenous butch active in local self-advocacy and independent living groups. She has been repeatedly screamed at and sexually harassed by white disabled men in both organizations. When she tries to talk about it, the abuse is brushed off, people don't believe she could be abused because she is butch, and they stress disability solidarity. 6. Ronald and Lisa are two of the many autistic youth locked up at the Judge Rottenburg Center in Canton, Massachusetts. Since 2012, the center has come under scrutiny and faced lawsuits because of its use of electroshock during applied behavioral analysis a common treatment for autism, where youth who stim or don't make eye contact get electric shocks from packs strapped to their bodies to punish them for acting autistic. Despite multiple lawsuits, shock behavior modification continues, and autistic youth institutionalized in the center continue to face medical violence and abuse. What would TJ look like for them? I want to talk about how ableism pushes us into isolation, strips us of social capital, and thus so many of us stay in abusive relationships of all kinds, or sometimes act in ways that cause harm, because finding love, sex, and companionship as a disabled person is so goddamned hard, and we feel like we have to take what we can get, or because we haven't had any role models of other disabled people loving and dating well. I want to write about how disabled people of all kinds are targeted by abusers, not because we are disabled, but because abusers target people who are seen as less credible because of ableism, knowing we are less likely to be believed, for reasons ranging from that person's crazy to who would rape you? I want to write about how survivors being dismissed as crazy is ableism. I want more disabled people to write our real stories of just how fucking hard it is to find love, sex, and friendships that are not violent, where you're not closeting all of your weird body-slash-mind secrets, and the deep triumphs and complexities of crip love when we make it happen.41 I also want there to be space to talk about the specific challenges even the sweetest disabled love faces. I want us to talk about the ways we blow open slash crip what sex and love can look like, talk about the ways we negotiate consent and bodily autonomy non-verbally and through every crypt out means of communication. Finally, I want to start to dream about what transformative justice looks like when someone who causes harm is disabled, I want there to be something, anything that is an ableist written about the intersections of neurodivergence or psych disabilities and being someone who's caused harm. Right now, if someone talks about how our psych disabilities or neurodiversity are intertwined in some way with how we've caused harm, either people fall into apologism, they have psych disabilities, you can't blame them, or we're seen as monsters, they have that disorder, they're toxic, stay away from them. Mostly, it's the latter and the ableist demonization of people with psych disabilities as killers and monsters leaves no room for us to really talk about what happens when we are mad and might cause harm. I want something else. I want anti-ableist forms of accountability that don't throw disabled people who cause harm under the bus, into every stereotype about crazed autistic, psychotic, multiple personalities abusive killers. Instead, I want us to create accountability recommendations that are accessible to our disabilities and neurodivergence. I want to start to think about what TJ might look like by and for disabled people harmed in hospitals, institutions, schools, special ed, and jails. I want to explore how TJ might work in our disabled black and brown queer circles, which are so small and precious, where we know all too well the killing implications of being shunned, and yet abuse can and does happen here too. Part 3. TJ on Crip Time, The Slowest Process in the World. For the past four years, I've been part of a transformative justice process some of us have laughingly and lovingly called the longest process in the world. 
It's also been one of the most successful, hope-giving processes that I've been a part of. The person who caused harm went from total denial that they had sexually violated someone to believing what the survivor was telling them and respecting and following the survivor's wishes. It's a scenario that everyone who tries TJ hopes for and often doesn't get. Everyone involved in this process, the survivor, the members of their support circle, the person who caused harm, their support and accountability circle, are sick and disabled queer and trans people, mostly of color. Sometimes we went six months between answering an email. We got sick, we had mental health hard times, we had access challenges like losing affordable housing. Often in this process, one or more of us has repeatedly apologized for how long it was taking. But how long is a process supposed to take? In many TJ-CA processes I've witnessed over the years, it's been common for people to operate on adrenaline and panic. We hear about a rape or an assault, our cortisol spikes, and people rush in to confront an abuser and deal with it. There's a flurry of texts, emails, meetings, actions. When the adrenaline crashes, processes unravel, and people stop answering emails or the phone. What we realized over time was that we were making a process happen on crypt time. We relaxed some. Maybe we weren't failing. Maybe this was one way of doing it right. Writer Ellen Samuels defines crypt time thusly. When disabled folks talk about crypt time, sometimes we just mean that we're late all the time, maybe because we need more sleep than non-disabled people, maybe because the accessible gate in the train station was locked. But other times, when we talk about crypt time, we mean something more beautiful and forgiving. We mean, as my friend Margaret Price explains, we live our lives with a flexible approach to normative time frames like work schedules, deadlines, or even just waking and sleeping. My friend Allison Kafer says that rather than bend disabled bodies and minds to meet the clock, Cryptime bends the clock to meet disabled bodies and minds. I have embraced this beautiful notion for many years, living within the embrace of a crypt time that lets me define my own normal. 42. Everyone in the process shared an overlapping disabled knowledge that shit happens, disability happens, panic attacks happen, SSDI failing to deposit checks in our bank's account happens. What our body minds can do shifts unpredictably, sometimes slower, which lets things simmer and sink in, sometimes incredibly, wildly fast. The most substantial changes that we hope for when we work on a transformative justice process, for someone who has caused harm to actually admit they've hurt someone and do the brick-by-brick work of change, will always take more than two weeks. Often, survivors, disabled and not, need time off between big moments and a process to take a breath or a break, come down from triggers, or ground into what they need. The changes we long for often happen in crypt time moments when we are supposed to be doing something else. It's a disabled knowledge that sometimes things are happening when nothing seems like it's happening. In working from a disabled space, we are doing something right and piloting new ways of making TJ work for everyone. Disability Justice Skills for Transformative Justice As disabled survivors, we have a lot of crucial disabled knowledge we can bring to TJ work. We have resisted and organized in shelters and institutions, as self-advocates, as members of patients' councils and psych survivor pride groups, and as people who have rich histories of refusing to obey. We have also resisted in isolation, holding on to a sense of our own dignity and worth even when denied community. We know how to lie, scheme, and hustle the law to get each other out of institutions and bad situations. When we organize to support survivors and challenge people who have harmed to change, we bring the crip innovation to our work, 
figuring out ways of getting survivors' needs met and getting people who have caused harm to change, and do it in ways that people who have not lived at our margins may never have thought of. A gift I have cherished in many disabled communities is how, out of our experiences being disposed of and forgotten, we can be skilled in not throwing people away when they cause harm and still asking them to change their ways. We often have more lived skills in the delicate art of interdependence than abled people do, at the vulnerable, risky, and often life-saving work of asking for and receiving help with dignity. Because of this, when we're designing TJ interventions, we can follow a disability justice practice of for real interdependence, where there are many roles for people in the TJ process, instead of everyone having to take leadership in the same way, and where people can move back when they're tired. And we know about tired. We know people are going to get tired doing this work. We are real about how long things really take. We also know that you can do things really well slowly in slow time, in 10 minutes of spoons time in slow time, 10 minutes of spoons slash energy time. We also know that sometimes doing an intervention quickly and efficiently with limited spoons can be a disability justice way of doing something. We can do TJ in a way where we anticipate curveballs, U-turns, breakdowns, and things not working out according to plan, because those are things living disabled is filled with all the time. We often know, and are not afraid of, the big emotions of grief, anger, pain, suicidality, and anxiety. Further, we often know how to witness and honor those feelings without trying to fix them. We know how to kick ass. And we know how to rest. Often, we do both at the same time. 37 There is a huge diversity of opinion within MAD communities about what words we like to use to refer to ourselves, and which we find oppressive. As a person with psych disabilities, I use crazy and mad as loving and respectful, sometimes rueful, reclaimed language, not an insult, to refer to those of us who experience psychiatric-slash-mental disabilities from depression, anxiety, CPTSD, DID-slash-plurality bipolar, schizophrenia, psychosis, borderline, altered or extreme states, and more. My use of crazy as insider language sometimes gets me lectures from able people about how inappropriate it is, but I've found it often brings knowing laughter from other folks who've been there. 38 In this article, I am using my definition of disability, which includes all people with non-normative body-slash-minds. This is a broad, cross-disability understanding of disability, used by many people in disability justice movements. Some people who identify as mad or mentally ill don't identify as disabled, something that can stem from many places, including a history of narrow definitions of disability, cross-community ableism, or thinking of disability as negative. However, I believe in the strength of a definition of disability that includes all of us. 39 U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Office on Women's Health, Violence Against Women with Disabilities, September 13, 2018 https colon slash slash www.womenshealth.gov slash relationships and safety slash other types slash violence against women disabilities. 40 IBID. U.S. Department of Women's Health and Human Services, Office on Women's Health, How Common is Violence or Abuse Against Women with Disabilities? September 13, 2018. Accessed April 5, 2019. HTTPS colon slash slash www.womenshealth.gov slash relationships and safety slash other types slash violence against women disabilities number 4. 41 CRIP is a term used by many disabled activists, scholars, organizers, and just plain folks for at least the past 50 years, 
as insider language for disabled people and community, we also use it as a verb, talking about the ways we crip, bring disabled knowledge and experience and genius to, our homes, lives, communities, organizing, hangouts, etc. and so on. It's a similar reclaiming of a despised word that's been used against us that is similar to as the way many LGBTS2 plus people use queer. Ubiquitous in many disabled communities, its use often makes abled people very confused, how could we possibly be calling ourselves that terrible word? Black disabled writer and organizer Leroy Moore coined the term crip to differentiate the word in the disabled sense from the Crips Underground Street Organization. 42 Ellen Samuels, 6 Ways of Looking at Crip Time, Disability Studies Quarterly 37, Number 3, 2017 http colon slash slash dsqsds.org slash article slash view slash 5824 slash 4684